Stay hungry, stay foolish. Now on the Innovation Show, it's a huge honor to welcome Bebop Gresta, chairman and co-founder of Hyperloop Technologies. Welcome to the show, Bebop. I'm honored and uh, I, I always like to participate in, uh, you know, shows that are not uh, in need for a mainstream channel. I think, you know, blog will become mainstream very soon and it started to happen. We're going to talk about Hyperloop and, and the vision and the vision becoming reality. But I'd love to talk about you because I think you have a really interesting background story. And oftentimes when you're in the media, which you're, you're, you do a lot of public speaking, it's based around Hyperloop. But I'd love to hear your background story, Bebop, if you would. Oh, happy to share whatever, you know, you want to to know. <laughs> You're now chairman and co-founder of one of the most exciting movements in in our time. And it'd be great to know what your background story was to get you to where you are today. So I don't know how, how far uh, behind you want to go. Uh, I started very early to work. Um, I started to study informatics um, when I was only nine my father uh, bought a computer and a keyboard and uh, forbid me to touch it. And uh, me and my sister were doing whatever we could to actually reach uh, the computer that was uh, locked in, in the studio. Uh, <laughs> and uh, by the time I was 12, uh, when my father discovered that I was using it, I was too late. I already was able to actually program. It was a very complicated uh, programming language, but it, it gave me the basis of uh, the programming uh, that I I think it was also helping me on everything I've done after uh, extreme logic thinking and organizational skills. I think are the basis of uh, any uh, programming uh, activity. So I was able to then um, go, um, thanks to my professor of, uh, of mathematics, to do a, a course in informatics. And um, he sent me there when I was 13, and I passed with the maximum um, of score. So a multinational company that was searching for a programmer that knew about graphic and database um, were were asking if there were a programmers uh, in the IBM center where I did the course. And IBM said, you know, the only available programmer that we know, it's a kid and uh, he, is, he has the skill that you need. And maybe because they were Canadian, um, in Italy, uh, they've had a very, um, let's say, advanced vision of the world. Uh, they actually offered me a job. And uh, at the beginning, my parents weren't um, agree to accept. But six months after, uh, they came back and I accepted. So I, I started to work after school. They were picking me up with a car and 40 kilometers away from my house, uh, was working at this um, center, Alpha Center International. 
I became head of uh, software development when I was 15. And then until 20, um, that was my, let's say, part-time job. But I was earning very well. And uh, I bought uh, some instruments, uh, musical instruments, because um, after a couple of stage in America, this multinational company sent me to America to study English was a, a big problem for me not being able to actually communicate in English properly. Not that I uh, actually do it right now, but uh, at least they understand me. <laughs> I, I always say I'm the only one speaking in English in the planet. It's not my fault if the others doesn't understand. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's often the way for an innovator. Right. And so um, when I came back from America, um, I, I've had the passion. I got the passion for dancing and, and hip hop. And uh, I started to um, actually work on a couple of records. Uh, and I was pretending to be a singer. Uh, once, uh, uh, almost randomly, um, I did a, a party for my 18th years old uh, party. And it was a famous DJ in the club that was going to be uh, doing a show immediately after the party was over. And he heard the song and he asked uh, the owner to, to meet whoever did this song. So at the end, it ended up that uh, he proposed me to produce the, the song. And the song hit the number, the, the top 10 of the Italian dance chart immediately. So all of a sudden, I I was uh, capable of starting a, a music career, and I had to left, leave the multinational company because um, there were requests for tours and and in concerts, and uh, I did it for uh, almost five years. I also had a, a TV show in national TV, and then I. I've uh, been the host and the producer of MTV for a couple, another couple of years. And then I founded Bebop, a company that was basically doing what I was best. It was programming the first initial websites because internet just kicked in in Italy. And uh, companies were searching for experts that knew something about uh, that. And I was combining my um, artistic career with uh, um, my programming knowledge, and I founded Bebop, a let's say cross media agency that was capable of uh, um, of creating websites. And four years after, um, Telecom Italia, the biggest telco uh, in Italy, uh, asked me to create a project uh, for them, a web project, and I created the community. Alice, Alice. And it was an immediate success, so big, 3.5 million people subscribed to the community, that Telecom Italia decided to buy my company for a lot of money. It was, um, say, the equivalent of what? $10 million. Wow. And what age were you then, people? It was 98. 1998, I sold my company, 40% of my companies, and uh, uh, probably created one of the first uh, case history of um, the Italian um, new economy. 
they did a documentary of my life and it was pretty popular. And uh, I, with that money, I partnered with another uh, big names that was Enrico Gasperini in Italy. And he was uh, famous because he did the first IPO uh, of that period of, of a web company. And then he called me and uh, he said he wanted to do a, a company with me. Uh, after I sold the Bebop, uh, we created Digital Magics. Very quickly became uh, one of the largest incubator of uh, startups. We, not because we are cool, but because the, the Italian innovation market didn't exist at the time. So we literally created an industry together and we invested in more than 70 companies. And in that period, I also did uh, participated to three IPO. And the last one was uh, actually Digital Magic, the, incub- the incubator itself. So it went really right. good. At that time, I decided that uh, uh, Italy was um, probably too small for my ambitions. And I also was really, um, let's say, um, disappointed by the situation, the Italian situation. Uh, there was the crisis kicking in 2011 was uh, the worst year ever. And so at that time, I started to understand that I wasn't growing and I wasn't learning anything new. And uh, I was receiving 1,400 uh, business plan a year. And I was reading all these ideas, knowing that uh, in Italy, that kind of project was not uh, capable of really, you know, lift off for a series of reasons. A lot of the Italian population doesn't speak English. So whatever you launch, you launch it for the local market. Yeah. And I decided to to actually move to California. And it was a very tough decision because imagine uh, I was the vice chairman of the company and I was one of the few of my partners actually was thinking about the internationalization of the company. And uh, after listing, that was the, I was the only opportunity that the company could have to actually become international. And I left, um, my partner were very disappointed. They weren't expecting me to leave, but um, something, you know, it's like a red button. When I press it, it's, it's gone. I have yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you can't go uh, back. No, and that's what I did. Uh, I called the board and I said, uh, guys, I'm going to U.S. And they said, why are you calling the board to go to U.S.? Uh, where, when are you coming back? And I said, never. <laughs> <laughs> and and that, that was what happened. I had exactly done this. I, I just left, uh, moved to California. I didn't know what I was going to do. and uh, But I, I knew I was searching for something that was um, different. Uh, the next activity that I was going to do was something that has to be meaningful, that has to actually really help humanity move forward. And that's what I was searching. But uh, my mood, uh, honestly, as soon as I moved to California, was that I had enough 
about startup. I didn't want to hear any more pitch on any startup. I, I didn't want even to hear the name startup. I said, I'm done with that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and I was in Los Angeles. Uh, I was um, trying to find the next thing. And uh, I was participating in a series of events uh, um, on a community called Metal. Uh, Metal is a famous community uh, of entrepreneurs and doers. Um, it's amazing. It's uh, um, hosted by Ken Rutowski. It's an incredible, talented uh, connector and networker that put together people like uh, Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari, together with Oscar winners, together with uh, Grammy-nominated, together with amazing entrepreneurs. And it's a community that um, uh, every week, every Saturday, um, speaks about the future and their presentation and panels and so on. So in that, um, one of of these events, this German uh, guy comes to me, speaking a perfect Italian, and he says, "Hi, I'm Dirk Albert." And uh, and I was surprised about his uh, amazing pronunciation. He said, "You know, I'm a German entrepreneur, and uh, I don't know if you heard about the Hyperloop." And it was uh, some months after Elon Musk published the white paper. And of course, I heard about the Hyperloop because it was in in the news already, Uh, but it was not uh, really known. It was really, you know, only technical people uh, at that time uh, really knew what it was. And I said, oh, wow, so you, you are doing the Hyperloop. And he said, yeah, I'm doing the Hyperloop. I know who you are because I've been in Italy 15 years. And I followed uh, a little bit your career, uh, and uh, I would love to you to be involved. And I was like, you know, so you want me to be involved in the Hyperloop? So how much money have you raised? The classical question that you ask, you know, because you know after. 15 years that you do startups, you think you have the uh, arrogance to think that you know everything about startups, including how startups are supposed to, 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 to be created, right? And the first question is, how much money have you raised, right? And so he said, nothing. I said, what? So you want to do the Hyperloop and you haven't raised any money. No, but I have, uh, he said, I have a hundred scientists working for me. And I said, okay, so you all do the Hyperloop, you have to raise the penny, and you have a hundred scientists working for you. And he said, yeah, yeah, I'm doing it with this crowdsourcing. At that time, even the concept of crowdfunding was at the beginning. So imagine crowdsourcing, you know, never yeah. heard. And I was like, what is that now? He said, well, we are giving stock option uh, in exchange of work. So I'm not raising money, I'm raising brains. And I was so arrogant. I said, listen, uh, dear Dirk Alborn, I, 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 I respect you, but I'm sorry to say that it's, you know, you're delusional. It's not going to happen. <laughs> 
and you're losing your time. And I'm sorry, but I don't want to be involved. And, you know, thank you very much. I'm, I'm done with startups and especially this startup. <laughs> it sounds really out of your mind. Okay. But it was really uh, stubborn and, and very humble, uh, Dirk. And he sent me the document anyway. And he said, whenever you have time, read it. Because I'm sure you have the capacity to understand this incredible project. And, you know, I was completely uh, um, far from transportation. My, all my, my life, I invested in media. The, maybe the closest thing that I've seen uh, was amusement parks. Uh, there was a period where I listed a company in UK that we were investing in hotels and amusement parks. And part of the job of building an amusement park is really putting together crazy science uh, where, you know, there, there's an artistic director that comes to you and says, you know, people has to fly uh, spinning three times uh, uh, across this uh, um, structure and then e they eat a wall of water and then there's an explosion and then people stop from uh, the 200 kilometers per hour to zero. And, and you have to create the science around it with 30, 40 scientists that actually creates the, the amusement uh, ride to actually be able to make people enjoy it without being killed. <laughs> so at the end of the day, that was something even crazier than the IPRO because there's really crazy science behind it. So I've been kind of looking at projects like this, but... I knew the difficulty and the amount of money that you have to raise to actually make it happen. And every project that we were looking at was half a billion dollars just to start playing with it, right? So, but Dirk sent me this document and it was on my desk for probably a couple of months and I was not in any uh, willingness to even open it. But the problem was every time I was going back to metal, Dirk was there and I was feeling embarrassed not to give him a reason why I'm not investing or, or not even you know considering that. So one day I decided to open the, the, the folder they sent me. And there was an amazing thing that I saw there was the, the Elon Musk document, the, the project that he uh, published, the white paper. And then there was a series of scientists that Dirk put together that was commenting the white paper. And there were people from NASA, SpaceX, Tesla, Boeing, Aerospace, Lockheed Martin, incredible scientists with incredible curriculum. And they were all working in different topics. If uh, something was doable, they were explaining why. And if something wasn't doable, they were proposing two or three alternatives that were actually doable. And for the initial pages that I started to read, I was hooked. For two months, I didn't do anything else. I was just studying this document. And the more I was going into it, the more it was exciting. because with a very candor simplicity, they were 
detailing why it was doable. And the more I was going into this document, the the more I was realizing that the most exciting part was not only that this was doable, but also the way he was doing it. Because all these people were working just for the passion of participating in a project like this. And professors, you know, MIT professors, there were people that worked with Einstein, people that contributed to the formation of the Apollo mission, uh, people that are, you know, expert in transportation uh, for 40 years. And all were working, you know, just taking stock options in, in, in exchange. And I started to call these people because, you know, my job in in the digital magics in my incubator was actually to do due diligence on this startup to understand if and how they could deliver what they were promising in their business plans. So I was a little bit of Sherlock Holmes in my company because I was actually the one that was really investigating and doing the real due diligence. So... I did what I do best. I, I started to really dig into each of the elements. And I realized that uh, the technology that we needed to build it were there. We weren't really talking about anything incredible or crazy to build. Yeah, that there's a, I, I immediately realized there was a big effort to actually integrate this technology. But if you start from the point that you don't have to reinvent anything, that it's a very good point to think about a new transportation system. So yeah. that was where I probably clicked uh, and uh, it was my haha moment because then I called back Dirk and I said, Dirk Halborn. <laughs> and he said, oh, Bebop, it's a long time that I don't hear you. I said, yeah, because of you, Moron. <laughs> I studied your thing, and I have a bad news for you. You're crazy, and <laughs> I would probably regret for all my life, or this would be the best decision of my life. But I now I think it's doable, and 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 I'm crazy like you. Now I think it's we we need to do it, and I can help yeah. you. And in in a couple of hours, I was describing him all the action plan of the next months. And I said, you know, we need to trademark this. We need to buy the license of this. We need to, and I've had all my plan already drafted. And he was like, oh, whoa, 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 slow down. Okay, okay, let's meet. <laughs> and I I, sound, I signed the first check to actually uh, acquire the, the, the patent of the levitation technology the, the same week that uh, we've had that call. That's how I came from programming in Italy to starting up uh, one of the biggest infrastructure projects of history. (laughs) You know, when you were telling me the story, I had this picture of you, like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, reaching for that computer, (laughs) the forbidden knowledge. (laughs) Yes, yes. Now look what happened. You've seen the world differently. But uh, it, it yeah. really, it, that really does come across, Bebop, that you had the opportunity to see the world differently and, and your untraditional upbringing, leading two lives as, as a kid and then yeah. as a programmer. Is, is that the gift? 
like we see this so many times with so many entrepreneurs and different thinkers, they get some different ingredient in their life that gives them a different recipe. And, and then, then this happens. The, this genius happens because of those different pathways. And most people are led down the same path and they do the same thing, same way as everyone else. And I often wonder what if, what if the world was more, there was more bebop upbringing in the world, you know, it would be a very, very different place. I, I think there's nothing genius in what I did. It's uh, putting together the inputs, the data that uh, was feeded to me. And I think, you know, I, I have a message to all the parents that tries to actually, you know, overflow kids uh, with the information and they they usually decide the path uh, uh, of them, even before giving them the opportunity to choose. I think the best way is actually to uh, teach them the know of society. I think what my father did best is to actually give me the knows very early so I could actually find a way to do it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, <laughs> so give more know to your children so they can actually have a reason to do that. <laughs> yeah, give them the boundaries. But you, you yeah. have, you've, re you've really teed this up now for uh, what is Hyperloop. So we know about the white paper, we know you stitched it together, but let's jump onto the premise that travel is absolutely broken and that it limits so many of us in our experience of the world and that Hyperloop is the solution. Yes, and I, I can tell you that uh, we're not oversimplifying and um, I'm perfectly aware that uh, in history, one system never replaced completely the other. We, we still have people running around with horses, right? So I'm not saying that we can actually substitute the entire transportation industry uh, with one system. But the efficiency of the Hyperloop and the fact that it can actually be built solving one problem without creating another 10 allow you to actually reshape completely the way we build transportation because you know we have been 200 years without innovating if you imagine that the train industry for example if you only analyze that one that we think it's the most efficient way to transport uh, people and freight on the ground in reality is based on such an obsolete technology. Imagine that the first rail uh, in the 19th century in uh, UK was built using the tools of the, the roads. Then the, the, the question is why they're building the roads uh, with that tools? Well, it's because of the Roman chariot. The Romans invented the roads. So the Roman chariot is based on the, the size of the butt of the two horses. Now we are building the gorge of the rail at 1.38 uh, meters distance because of that, because of the Roman chariot, and because of the two butt of the two horses. But the, the scandal is not that one. Is that if you increase the size of the gorge, of a rail of 30 centimeters, you could transport double the freight and double the passengers, but they don't do it. They, they haven't done it. Why? Because it's a complete 
subsidize, subsidize industry that hasn't innovated and doesn't need to innovate. Because if you analyze every uh, rail in the planet, uh, is not really uh, even competing anymore. It's just a, a, a an industry that is in the hands of a few uh, companies that uh, stopped innovating a while ago. Yeah, and, and the subsidization, is that, I mean, that's a huge thing because they don't have to compete. They're not private, so they don't have to hunt for their food. Absolutely. And unfortunately, I discovered while I approached the, the transportation sector at the beginning, no one system in the planet is profitable. They all subsidize from the state. They need subsidies to actually uh, allow the, these companies to break even. But you could say, okay, you know, who cares? I mean, we have the trains and it's subsidized. Well, the problem on that model is that you, as soon as you build one, you will uh, give to entire generations the uh, liability of maintaining these systems because they are too uh, expensive to maintain. They constantly need subsidies. And of course, they are all taken from tax money. And points of GDP of entire nations are all spent uh, to maintain these kind of systems. Money that could be spent in education, in hospitals, in things that we need. In Within 2040, we will lose 30 to 35% of the entire jobs of the planet. This is for forester research. These jobs will not be substituted. They will be gone. And what happens to all these young people that are actually studying and then they will be on the market uh, place and they will not find a job? We need to start to reshape our economy that is based on scarcity and you know we we have been so stupid to build the economy of, of unlimited resources in a planet that has limited resources this is crazy and this kind of system if we build it they are self sustainable because the hyperloop is using a, a combination of renewable energy and with excess of energy that we can create because the hyperloop is energy positive we can actually um, get rid of the ticket and pay the maintenance for it. So it's not only profitable and can recoup the entire investment, can only can, can also uh, uh, repay for the maintenance. Imagine this new generation of infrastructure that doesn't need and require any ticket and any subsidies because the energy generation uh, generated is uh, enough. Uh, this is the start of a new generation of companies that are actually not based on consumption. And I think the planet needs as fast as we can to move there because we have all the technologies to do that. And it's really a matter of life or death for humans to actually embrace these new technologies. When you look back at all the fantastic experiences you have from being a pop star and running your own accelerator, selling your own company, being a 16-year-old wealthy kid while everybody else is selling lemonade. This optimum moment of being able to leave a legacy on the planet must be so fulfilling. That's, I think, very important to understand 
after you've been successful and also having failed a lot, actually you start to synthesize your life and start to be um, aware. And I think that moment, when that moment comes, uh, you feel like a call. And I've seen this happening in a lot of successful people. It's something that you can't go back. Once you feel it and you feel this call, then you have to do it or you you will be, you know, very unhappy. I think the, the main goal for our life is actually to achieve happiness. And I strongly believe that uh, with technology, we can have a planet of abundance where happiness can be granted to everybody. And I'm not idealistic. I'm very practical. I think we can reach there. We have all the technology to do that. That's why I'm super proud of what we are doing, because the crowdsourcing model that actually has been just published by Harvard uh, as a template, uh, they are using us. uh, They say we are the biggest startup in the planet. I think we are the biggest effort that humanity did to put together the best minds in the planet to solve one of the biggest problems, that is transportation. Now, this has been published by Harvard Business Review and is used as a template to solve all the other problems of humanity. We can actually do it. We have the technologies to solve energy, food, housing, you know, all the big topics of humanity. And we need to actually train our kids and our new generation because they are the, the, the people that can actually make this happen in one generation. We have the technologies, we need to do it. That is a phenomenal goal, Bebop, and as is the goal of Hyperloop. Is there somewhere on the website, perhaps, hyperloop.global, people can get involved? If you are interested, you can actually apply. And, you know, our HR right now, it's uh, receiving 60 requests a day. Uh, wow. But we are, we are growing very fast. So wow. um, really, it's, you know, f- from... Inception until now, we have 900 people working from 42 countries. Uh, it's exciting what's happening right now. Bebop Bresta, co founder and chairman of Hyperloop Transportation Technologies. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Aidan. It's a pleasure.